Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Hey, fuck you, man. I'm fine. Alone out here. No woman. No kids. And no old friends. So that means I get to drink exactly as much as I want to. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's that time of year, the listener-selected episode. What do you think our listeners are going to make you research for this one? Jordan Peterson's entire uh, autobiography. <laughs> of? <laughs> how, he, how he grew from, from lobster at the bottom to lobster at the top. <laughs> I, I, uh, l- looking over the suggestions, I was actually quite happy that none of them seemed, with the exception of, you know, that I'll get to, but none of them seemed too research intensive for me. Um, so on today's episode, we're going to, in the first segment, we're going to each list our favorite topics. Um, and then we will try to agree on five to six finalists. Um, Last time we did this, we chose six finalists. Oh, and in the second segment, we will continue our discussion of Notes from Underground, incorporating part two into uh, the discussion, and that will conclude our Notes from Underground discussion. Uh, So the last time we did a listener-selected episode, the six finalists, one was Ethics of Care, um, Feminist Critiques of Ethical Theory. That was in third place. Pedagogy and teaching was one that was uh, towards the bottom. Implicit bias, this came in second place. Um, moral uncertainty, I think, the of, of the topic we eventually talked about with Will McCaskill. I think that was what was generating right. it, is people wanting us to talk about some of the stuff that he's been doing. Friendship um, was one. And the psychology of personality, which was the eventual winner. Just beating out implicit bias. So we ended up doing three of those. Uh, right. We, hopefully this will be as fruitful. Um, yeah, I think it might. Um, and we, pro- we got a lot of suggestions, right? Yeah, we, we got like 125 right. suggestions. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I, I've whittled my list down to about seven, but really one of them I think is more of an opening segment than a main segment, but I'll just throw it out there. Why don't you go first? All right. Are we doing these in any order? I'm not. No. no. Okay. So um, self-deception. 
I actually think there's a lot to be talked about when it comes to self-deception that we've touched a little bit on motivated reasoning, but there is a, uh, a, I think a good conversation to be had about things like the above average effect, you know, why, why we seem so bad at assessing our own skills and abilities. Um, and just conceptually, what, how is it possible uh, conceptually and psychologically, I guess self-deception uh, really possible what are we doing when we're deceiving ourselves do we at some level know um i think that i'm would not be sure i topic. saw this one yeah i should have kept the the names of everybody we will give credit <laughs> i um, i have i have the names from I the know. website I, I should have but, but yeah, anyway that I'll would be a good it. one i like that. yeah <laughs> my uh, my first one is from stephen kinsey where's that denial of death episode bitches <laughs> that book fucked me up for a year and a half. Is this podcast your immortality project? Without even knowing what an immortality project is in relation to <laughs> denial of death, I can pretty much say yes. <laughs> so this is uh, the what Ernest Becker denial of death, which you've yep. read, but I have not. Um, yeah. So I'd be interested in doing this. Um, it would require reading a whole book, but. It's not a hard book to read, is it? It's no, no, no. It's not hard at all. And it's good. Um, right? It is good. Uh, it, it it was good when I read it in college, though. You know, I haven't read it in a long time. So so, um, but it's interesting. Self deception, by the way, was uh, Scott Harshbarger. Um, okay. Only because only because the people keep demanding it, Tamler. Yes. Star Trek. Wait, you guys. <laughs> There's, you gotta win another I bet. To, I have to put it. I have to put it in just because there are a few mentions. I want to pay attention to the listeners. I want to give them what they want. You know, these are our beloved Patreon supporters. If they want us to talk about certain episodes of Star Trek, um, then who are we? Who are we? <laughs> in particular, there's an episode that there's an episode suggested by Dominic Delulu, Delulo, uh, the Inner Light. And uh, he suggested two, The Inner Light and Measure of Man. Uh, Inner Light probably being my favorite Star Trek episode of all time. Maybe for a Patreon bonus. How about that? Mm, I know. I knew. I knew. I knew. I had to I'll try. do that, though. I'll do <laughs> it for a Patreon episode. <laughs> uh, but not for this. Okay. Uh, this was also a couple listeners. One, Sandro Witwer and also Gary Flood. Both of them requested a Kafka story. Um, and one of, uh, and, and in addition, um, talked about, so Kafka, I think in his will, uh, expressed the desire that all his work be burned and not published. And his first translator went against that wish and published it. So the ethics of that might be a good way of leading into the Kafka story. Yeah, definitely. I had, I had Kafka on my list so. yeah uh, so we just yeah. have to settle on the story but that would be i think uh that would be really cool yeah this is one of those there's a few <laughs> there's a few episodes that we keep putting off uh and or at least it feels like we keep putting off and one of them is just the ethics of how we care for animals like a direct um mm-hmm. we had a couple a couple ask us to to talk about Things like veganism and and just the ethics of vegetarianism and and animal care. Andre Griffin was the one who most recently uh, suggested that, but I think there were two or three of those. Yeah, there were. 
I that that made my longer short list. So, but I'd I'd be open to putting it on. We'll see if uh, I, I I have some other ones I like better. So so let's see. But we'll yeah. keep it on the back burner. Okay, this is from I. Well, here's another one that we are have been putting off for a while. Um, this was also one of the finalists last time. Um, so Alexander Zanny, when he's not <laughs> posting on Reddit about how my audiobook sounds like shit, uh, <laughs> he uh, he makes some good suggestions. And this one is, uh, he'd like to hear us talk about epistemic injustice and feminist epistemology more generally. Also, Gwyn Richards, Gwyn Richards, uh, suggested ethics of care. So, I, I mean, we could do maybe both of those together. We might want to have a guest. I, I know some of this stuff. I, I did uh, some of this stuff in my grad seminar on metaphilosophy, but that would, you know, uh, I think feminist epistemology and ethics of care could be pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. And, and right, there's, I think that's, you're exactly right. That's another one that, that's just been hanging there that, we, <laughs> that yeah. we've managed to put off for a while. Um, so there's, this was a suggestion that actually led me to think more about this general topic. Um, and it was a suggestion about merging into traffic. Did you see this? So this is from Chad Michulik. Michulik. Um, he says... <laughs> So it's, it sounds like a like it wouldn't make an episode, right? But it, he says, is it better to merge at the last opportunity when you're merging on the highway? Is it better to merge at the last opportunity, opportunity before the bottleneck? Um, and he he wonders whether this is a moral question. If the cars in front of you have already merged, is it ethical to go around them? And this got me to thinking that um, <laughs> so much of my moral cognition is... You know, if you were going to break down the percentage of times, it's not it's not me wondering about whether abortion is right or wrong. It's more like that fucker cut in front of me in line or like that asshole has like 20 items in the 10 or more item uh, list. And there is something about unfairness in everyday life. That would be fine. 20 items in a 10 or more (laughs) would be totally cool. You're okay with that? Well, if it's 10 or more, 20 is more than 10. I mean, 10, 10 or fewer. <laughs> yeah. You're so clever. <laughs> uh, 10 or fewer items. Uh, yeah. There's... But um, so unfairness and every, in everyday life or just even in general, more, the morality of everyday life, right? Like what is, what is worth, uh, what, what actually gets under our moral skin um, in our everyday life, what is like somebody double parking, for instance, there's a whole bunch of, uh, yeah, I think we could even do sort of a top five, um, pet moral peeves episode, but I, I think we actually, yeah, if, if we're going to start moral peeves, <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. This one seems really interesting, but I don't know anything about it. So this might be a Pizarro research, um, unless you know about it, but Marshall McCready or I I think an episode on the evolutionary psychological reasons humans think using conceptual binaries, black, white, clean, dirty, left, right, etc. Why we map these binaries in the way we do. Why is black, dark associated with dirty, bad? 
and how such binaries affect our philosophical positions would be fascinating. For instance, does our psychological binary of static dynamic meaningfully relate to our philosophical differentiation of deontology from consequentialism? So I, what I don't know about, I, I love the idea of how these sort of artifacts of the way we have uh, evolved or been culturally socialized affect our philosophical positions as, um, in ways that aren't transparent to us. So I think that could be really cool, but I don't know about this specific research surrounding the conceptual binaries. Do you? No. Um I think in one of our episodes, I went on a rant about dual process theory and, mm-hmm. and just in the fact that we, we are fascinated by the number two. Um, the closest I can think of, and this is, there is a literature on embodiment um, that, that argues um, that, that our concepts are heavily influenced by the kinds of bodies we have. And so one, one poignant example always is that, that we have a base 10 system, and that's probably because we have 10 fingers. Tentos, um, right. it's the most commonly sort of uh, arrived at mathematical system. Um, so you know the episode; it could be interesting. I, it might be a lot of conjecture, especially in how this influences our philosophy. Um, yeah. It might just be us sort of playing around with with this idea. Um, but yeah, I think it's putting on our Marxist hats. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if we can do this if we don't know about that research, but um, if there are any 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 helpful readings, maybe. Yeah, that anybody if has Marshall, Marshall, if you have any uh, suggested readings, even if we don't put it on this finalist list, we'd definitely be open to doing this episode. So email yeah. us. We ha- we have not had any overlap yet. Uh, Kafka, we had Kafka. Oh yeah, Kafka, right. Yeah. One of the suggestions, and I, I don't think we've actually done an episode on this, but you can tell me. Oh, fuck, I just lost my Patreon window. Um, is on hypocrisy. Have we done, have we directly addressed hypocrisy? I've, I had that same thought, and I feel like we have. I really, really do. Like, I, I why hypocrisy bothers us. Um, but it might not be. It literally might be like I saw a talk on it, or I yeah. Uh, yeah I don't. I, I I feel like we might have have mentioned it. We definitely like didn't devote up. a whole like episode to it. No, a reading yeah. or something like that. Yeah, right. So there is like um, moral hypocrisy, but also just in general hypocrisy. This was a, a suggestion by Joe Piakuch. Piakuch, Piakuch, sorry, Joe. <laughs> uh, hypocrisy, why it's unsettling, what that tells us about ourselves and the cause of our unease. You've talked about it before, oh, he says, we've talked about it before, but a thorough discussion would be edifying. Um, there's even, there's some work on moral hypocrisy um, that might be interesting, but just hypocrisy in general. Like why in philosophy us. too, yeah. like philosophy and psychology. I yeah. Think like we, yeah. We, we hate hip, I, th- I think we talked about a paper, it came up in a different context about how we hate moral hypocrites, even if they are promoting something that's good. Right, so for consequentialist right. reasons, it's actually good that they're being hypocrites if they influence other people. But right. we hate that more. We would rather that they didn't endorse something and didn't influence other people to do the right thing 
so yeah, like it relates to some of your character stuff, I think, about how right. what we're really doing is evaluating characters a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. We've just taken care of the discussion for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. We're done. There's your thorough discussion right there. Uh, um, okay, so this is the one that I think might be better for an opening segment um, and could also possibly lead to my divorce. But Christine Caroline uh, had a post, yeah, for, for on Patreon, and then she also posted this on Reddit about polyamory versus <laughs> adultery. She argued that adultery was more ethical than polyamory. Uh, so I guess polyamory would be a kind of open relationship that you would have with your spouse where you could have right. multiple sexual partners. And then she says that to her, a don't ask, don't tell policy for couples who live in different cities seems reasonable, um, but complete transparency seems disrespectful. She just has kind of an aesthetic aversion to polyamory that it's just better to just you know, if you're going to cheat on a, a spouse, just do it and uh, and not and and not talk about it. Now, she, I think she walked it back in Reddit because a lot of people jumped down or, or were were vehemently opposed to it, saying that the honesty is what really matters. And but I I actually kind of agree with her that, uh, and I I also have this aesthetic aversion to a kind of people who have open relationships. But I think for different reasons, maybe, than she does. To me, it sounds like you're, I don't know, trying to prove something. Or, I don't know. We should save this, because I bet we right. could talk about it. I remember that I was talking about this uh, with a friend of mine who's a psychologist, and, and he said, and because I expressed something, an equivalent sentiment, that, that uh, better to not know. And he said... That was insightful. So the reason that you prefer that policy is because you think that you will cheat on her, but she won't cheat on you. <laughs> right. I think that's probably that's a good. That's a very good uh, point. Uh, it gets to gets to self deception a little. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We could combine those two. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah. Uh, that this that actually was one of the topics that that I knew would lead me to have to do a lot of research because there is, there's quite a bit written on, on this sort of stuff, but also it, on, it ties on in polyamory think, versus yeah, adultery or on polyamory or just on polyamory and, and sexual jealousy that like, it's a big, it could end up being a big topic. Um, you know, the, in tie into in general, somebody else suggested envy. Um, it could, you know, the psychology of jealousy and envy, uh, yeah. might, yeah. Right? some people just claim to not be jealous at all, sexually jealous. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and I believe those people. Yeah, sometimes. I don't think they're yeah. not always, yeah. but sometimes. But yeah. I just, I still just, there's something about that that, well, then you don't really love the person, or you don't right. really like. I don't know. <laughs> there's and, and 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 sometimes it it just seems like they're trying to prove how enlightened and open minded they are, <laughs> right. and I don't buy it. <laughs> but this is all stuff we should say. I have two more. Um, the first is Nathan P., Joe Henrik's cultural evolution research, and in particular, his concept of collective intelligence. I did a little sort of research into this, and he has a few papers on it, and I know his new book is a lot about that. 
I thought the, you know, collective intelligence, that might be kind of interesting to dive into. It's not something I think we've talked about. Uh, Henrik came and gave a, a really great talk on his new book here at Cornell, like last year. And it was just so full of interesting ideas. So maybe even, maybe not the whole book, but picking, picking a chapter or two. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've thought that for a long time that he's doing some of the most exciting research, uh, yeah. if not the most exciting research of anybody. Um, we had him as a guest, you might recall. Super early on. And then the last one. I have one more too. Yeah. It's on, uh, this is Nathan Ade uh, on the topic of authenticity. You know, that word can mean a lot, a lot of things, and we've certainly discussed it before, but I think there could be something interesting about, uh, about what it means to be authentic and why we like it, or, you know, whether or not it's bad to be inauthentic, what it even means to be inauthentic. Do some conceptual analysis. Of, exactly. Of, yeah, exactly. Of, and we could just come up with a bunch of examples of inauthentic people. You can get <laughs> Bob, Smith, the, neuroscient- the neuroscientist uh, actually placed a chip in his brain where he's uh, saying some of the things that he really believes, but he's only saying it because of the chip. Is he? Being <laughs> now right. there be some stuff like uh, also on you know like true self stuff, which we have talked about. But you know, like, do you see true self and authenticity as different? Right. Um, you know, these are there's uh a discussion that I think would be interesting about artists and what, what it means. Like, so what we sort of hate it when, when an artist is not, you know, is pretending to be something that they're not, or at least, especially in some genres. Like Fronting. Could, yeah. Um, uh, you, you know, if you find out that somebody made up their whole sorted history, um, just so they could sound cooler to, to write cool songs, you're just like, what? Like, I don't like their shit anymore. Right. Like, and it's like, wait, the, their art hasn't changed. Um, right. So my last one is a combo, Matthew Evans and Sam Trejo. So this is something that Paul Bloom, I, uh, th- one of them mentions Paul Bloom on Waking Up with Sam Harris. And it says, Sam Harris asked him what from the giant body of psycho- psychology literature could one use to become a better parent? And Paul said, hmm. nothing. Uh, <laughs> now I know because I remember... The first time I met Paul, actually, we were at a bar, and I didn't know him at all. And he's he he launched into this sort of uh, rant about how parents have no influence on their kids, like how you mm-hmm. what your kid's character is going to be like doesn't like how you are is is totally meaningless. What really matters is their peer group, and uh, and a lot of people had a were pushing back on it, and you know now that. I have a 14-year-old. I, I, I also now push back against that idea, and I want to know what he's basing that on. Yeah, so actually there is a, um, a book called The Nurture Assumption that right. was written by, by Judith Rich Harris, who recently passed away, actually. Um, and is interest, she's just an interesting person. She was just a textbook writer who had who'd never sort of made, made it in the world of, of academics. I, I don't know if she wanted to or not, but she was just plugging away writing textbooks. And, and in writing these textbooks, she was like, you know, all this work on parenting is just so it's just correlational and bullshit. Like good parents have, you know, if it boils down to good parents have good kids, um, uh, then it's genetics, but then if it if it's environment, it's pretty clear that that the parents aren't really doing 
most of the work. It's the peers. So, uh, so we, we could dive into that book. Like, I want to know what the research is. We could have Paul on for this maybe, but I want to know what makes people who say this so confident that it's true and what they really mean. Cause obviously, you know, you see a lot of fucked up people in this world, adults, (laughs) and often it seems to trace to, uh, parenting issues when they were growing up, anxiety and a lot of, or at least it appears that way um, right. to un, from my unscientific eyes. So, uh, so I want to, I, I would talk about that, and then you know, I think one of them said, you know, this could lead into a discussion of parenting in general, in general, and maybe some dilemmas that we've each faced. Um, but yeah. I like I, yeah. I, I want to dive into this because I, I I go in probably with motivated skepticism, right? And and I feel like I was influenced very much by my mom, and I know that that's like correlation, and it could be my genes and uh, right. That's but, that's the that's the the big, the big you know the two the two pronged argument of of the behavioral. So we'd have to go into maybe some of the behavioral genetic stuff, and that almost made my list for the very reason that I was like, oh man, this would require <laughs> require actually reading. But you know um, what? Like, unlike you know the some of the other stuff where it's so clear that you're the one that has to do it, I think that I would you would be, take this on. Well, I don't know if I'd fully take it on, but at least I would do. <laughs> I would do my part, you know. <laughs> well, then that's made my top five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's uh, let's narrow this down to five. So, we're, are we good for that one? Uh, yeah, we're good with that the one. Ethics of parenting and how much do parents make a difference? Yep, or, I think. Um, yeah. So, hypocrisy. Did would that one make our list? Oh wait, so let's just for sure the ones that we I think both um like so I think the parenting one, I think the feminist epistemology um yeah. one, ethics of care. Um I think the denial of death or just the existential psychology in general. Um Okay, so those were the three that were on your list that I would would put that I can think of. I liked self deception. Yeah, self deception for sure. I think that yeah. would be fun. So, so that's four, right? Yeah. I mean, if the polyamory and adultery and versus, if there's a literature about that, it could be a main segment and not a jokey opening segment, you know? Yeah, and that actually might be really good to have a guest um, for, like somebody who actually... (laughs) Does an open relationship? (laughs) Yeah, or or researches that that stuff um <laughs> uh, diana fleischman actually uh, oh yeah suggested. And, yeah and someone suggested i mean we've thought about having her on i think that mm-hmm. might be fun yeah, she's really great um would that beat out animal ethics for you ethics of animals i think if we put kafka on it won't win like we can just do kafka yeah. we've talked about it so i could i could move that out um i think if we want to do it we'll do it we we clearly I, I think, seem to yeah, do these so, right. literature stuff like we're, we're having fun in the yeah. recent episode. So I think a um a moral like top moral pet peeves would be a good opening segment, but maybe not a, a full yeah, episode. Yeah, that would be a good opening segment actually. So mm-hmm. that would leave animal ethics. 
So we have five, if we do feminist epistemology, denial of death, self-deception, parenting, and polyamory, that's five right there. We don't need to put animals. Oh, so we're going to include polyamory? Yeah, that would be fun, actually. Yeah. Polyamory. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, are we not going to do animal ethics? To me, it was down to either polyamory or animal ethics. Okay. If we put... uh, Right. Uh, polyamory would be more fun. Yeah, it might be fun. So are we doing, we could throw uh, animal ethics on there for the sixth. Like we, we had six last time. We could do six yeah. this time if sure. we're struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, if we're picking between uh, polyamory and animal ethics, the real question is, what would you rather uh, listen to Tamler be defensive about for an hour? <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, like, you could combine animal ethics, because then there's also being polyamorous with the animals. Well, that's wrong. So, I mean, I, I feel like everybody's intuition is pretty strong on that. Like, I don't, know, I don't even know what the discussion would be. Like, you can't I, fuck two dogs. <laughs> you have to be, yeah, you have to be committed like, to I mean, dog. dog, dogs have nothing if not loyalty. Like, I don't, <laughs> like that would just be them <laughs> completely wrong. <laughs> Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, this is the time of the show where we like to take a moment and thank all of our listeners for all of your support. We really appreciate it. Uh, really keeps us going, keeps us motivated, and we're very grateful. If you want to get in touch with us, you can, first of all, jot us an email um, at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Um, you can tweet us at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards. Uh, if you want to join in the discussion, we usually have lively discussions going on on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards or our Facebook discussion as well. Facebook.com slash very bad wizards. You can even follow us on Instagram. Um, you can just search for very bad wizards there. If you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, we very, very much appreciate that as well. So thank you to all those who have done that already and who continue to support us, you can go to our website, verybadwizards.com, and click on the support page there, and that'll tell you all the ways in which you can support us. Um, for instance, you can just click on our Amazon link and shop as you would on Amazon normally. You don't get charged anything extra, but we'd get a little little piece of it. Um, you can donate a one-time or recurring donation at PayPal, or you can go to our Patreon page and become one of our beloved Patreon subscribers. 
That is patreon.com slash verybadwizards. Again, thank you for all the ways in which you have helped support this podcast, both by interacting with us, contacting us, and supporting us financially. We very much appreciate it. Okay, now we're going to continue our discussion of Notes from Underground, Part 2. The way we left it, I had said that I think once you read Part 2, it makes you look at Part 1 differently um, and makes you look at the underground man differently and makes you look at that whole position that's being outlined in Part 1 just really briefly. So in Part 1... The way the underground man frames it is he's trying to figure out why he has this trait where he will positively enjoy humiliating himself. He will <laughs> positively enjoy his degradation. The, the, the answer to this question is that he is living in a society, in a world that embraces a deterministic worldview according to which once we understand the laws of nature using science and reason we will set up society in such a way that human beings always act to their own advantage right now human beings act against their own self-interest but that's just because they're not enlightened we now or soon will have a, a way of enlightening them to their true interests, and so then they will always act in that uh, in that direction, in the interests of themselves, in the interests of society. And he considers his perverse actions, his capricious actions, his acts that are so plainly go against his own self-interest, that is his way of affirming his freedom from this worldview, that once enlightened to their true interests, they will act in a way that's oriented towards those interests. And he's saying, no, we won't. Human beings aren't wired that way. We will always act perversely. We will always act in ways that go against our interests just to assert our own freedom, just to assert our own independence from these laws. So it was kind of, as as we discussed last time, he was kind of painting his his perversity and his pathologies in a in a somewhat heroic light, heroic maybe from an existentialist point of view. Right. And I think in part two, you start to see this maybe as delusional this is a very frustrated man consumed by guilt consumed by loneliness and alienation and he wants to make sense of that and in order to justify himself and his existence he has come up with this fairly grandiose idea that's one of the things that i wanted to talk about is is this idea that that all, all that philosophy in part one is one way to read it is it's a rationalization of a life gone terribly wrong right. or in a life that was never right to start with and that just kept getting worse and worse right he thinks that that um 
that subjecting himself to suffering, he has a, a discusses his toothache, like why he, he enjoys having like a really bad toothache. Like it, to, to him, it livens him up. It reminds him that he is conscious and that he's consciousness to him is, is the one thing that's not part of this stupid determinism. This two times two makes four. And, and, and you know, if there's one thing you would think we were biologically wired to do is treat a toothache if we can. God knows <laughs> you and I would be begging every dentist we could find for Vicodin or Percocet or something like that. It's you know, happened. when you want it, they never give it to you. I know. <laughs> dentists are there. Like, come on, dentists. Fucking dentists. <laughs> God damn it. Be cool. Um, so did we say that the part one is, um, we mentioned that he's 40 um, in his discussion yeah. of how it's perverse to have lived that, 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 uh, bad that manners, long. bad manners. That's right. But part two is the, the actual story takes place 20 years before. So he's recounting events um, yes. from, from 20 years before. And, th- so he, and that's what's so sad, right? Like yeah. this is. He's still obsessed by these memories that he's describing in part two, you know, so then what you realize is what he's describing in part two happened 20 years earlier than what he's saying in part one, which I think that's why it has to change the way you think of part one, because you're 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 now seeing what led to. (laughs) Right. You could read part one and think, well, he's a little crazy, but he really is shaking his fist at the universe. And when you actually see what that entails, it's like, as you said, it's a justification for uh, the most trivial acts of cowardice, maybe? I, I don't know. It's like a, a... And also cruelty, which is, I think, cruelty. which is what's tormenting him the most. Uh, both the humiliation and also just, I think, guilt for how he treated Liza. Right. And that he can't forgive himself for that. So just uh, why don't we give just a brief summary of what happens in part two. The underground man describes three events in his life. The first is sort of a standalone event that describes his obsession, his weird obsession, uh, although weirdly understandable and relatable with an officer that he uh, crosses in the street and who never moves away. Like when they're when they're walking toward each other. The officer never is the one to move, and uh, he feels as if he's being uh, totally slighted on purpose. So he's obsessed with getting revenge on this officer, um, but the officer really doesn't even notice what's happening, presumably. Uh, the second story uh, and the third story tie in together temporarily. Uh, the second one is just the underground man sort of invites himself to a party um he's he goes to visit a quote-unquote friend from from his school days and they're planning a retire um, a going away party for a friend he manages to invite himself even though they clearly don't want him to go they go to a bar underground man gets increasingly drunk and again views lots of things as insults when they might not be but also his friends are getting tired of him his friends and didn't yeah, want him to come. You just know, didn't want him did. to come. It's pretty clear. <laughs> and, so, and like the more that they expressed that they didn't want him to come, the more sort of he intrudes uh, on it, even uh, to the point of making it so so important for him to go, despite them not coming, that he's willing to um, use the little bit of money that he has left and not pay his, his servant. They sort of increasingly ignore him. He's increasingly getting drunk. 
and he uh, is increasingly feeling insulted and ignored. And, and you've uh, had a good life if you can't relate to this experience <laughs> yeah. to some degree. Like, That's right. I felt like he's tapping into something. It's never been that bad for me, but he's tapping into something that is, right. you know, that I can, that like, just where you kind of have a sense that you're not wanted and there's nothing you can do about it. And so you're drinking more and you're, you know. So his friends end up ditching him and going to a, a brothel. Um, and he he's like, well, I'm going to go follow them. Um, anyway, so he, he figures out where they're going and follows them. But they're already presumably um, in rooms with their respective, with their respective uh, dates. And so he actually um, encounters a, a young prostitute named Liza. And they, I don't think it's exactly um, stated, but they presumably have sex and then they get into a, a conversation and in the conversation, the underground man is just being kind of an ass and he's p- pretty much telling her that her life is, is shit. And it's like, she's never, she's not going to be pretty forever and her life will, <laughs> will yeah. end in, in tears. But he's and, also at times acting like he cares about her and wants her to do something better with her life but the more he talks the more a that doesn't seem possible for her her father sold her into this prostitution um but he is he's taking a pose of a gentleman that is kind of moralizing to her about what she's doing to her life right right and uh he he then feels guilty about what he's been saying to her he sort of goes back and forth, as you say, between being uh, like sounding like a, somebody who really cares and not. And finally, he just sort of really apologizes and lays it all out. Right. Like she's Liza has made herself vulnerable to him. And he's he's he just tells her the, the one thing about underground man is he seems to have introspective access. Like he seems to have insight into why he is how he is. He just sort yeah. of ignores it at times. He's like he actually says that he's just horrified by his own poverty and he's embarrassed uh, at himself and uh, he he just clear lays out how pitiful he is and she she embraces him she feels sorry for him and um and then he he like it could end really well like with these this tender moment of connectedness between these two people and he just fucks it all up by like stuffing money into her hand well no hold on you're running you're running the things together. So there, what happens at the night, that concludes with him giving her his address and saying that she should come. And her at the, and then I think what you're oh, talking Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when, right. The, what, what, what you're talking about happens at his apartment. <laughs> that's and right. That's, she visits him at his apartment. I'm sorry. And that's where he, he lays himself bare to her, as you said, and where um, he does the thing that, is I think the single thing that he can't forgive himself for, um, which is taking this person who trusted him and and putting money in her hand in the most contemptuous way <laughs> after they have um, mm-hmm. opened themselves up to each other in ways that he never thought possible and, and in ways that he's never done before or since. And... That it, it, you get the sense that the whole underground that he's been thinking about it for twenty years, and his whole philosophy is trying as a way of trying to justify it, right? And um, or explain it. And you really, it really is a poignant moment, 
right? He's he's gone back and forth from like treating her like a human being and insulting her. Seems to understand what his own problems are, but it really is clear that sort of shoving shoving the money into her hand um, is pr- kind of the worst thing you could do to a human being who you've just just sort of experienced this bond with. And we'll so, talk about it because I I have a lot to say about sort of. What he, how he describes putting money in her hand, it's very different than how he describes <laughs> all these other ways that he's done things that either humiliated him or degrades him or that are immoral or just totally antisocial. Uh, right. The way he describes this is different, but we'll talk about right, that right, uh, right. later on. Right. So it goes from potentially being an existentialist. Um, affirming of myself and my identity as a human being in this horrible universe uh, to being um, a cruel and narcissistic hyper-focus on one's own life, thinking that the world revolves around him in a way that is, even he knows, like it kills him that nobody notices him. Um, but yet he thinks that somehow everybody secretly does, that this is all, like the whole world is a plot against him. Yeah, right. And what you said last last episode about it seems like the ravings of an incel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems to, I don't know, trivialize to some extent this anguish that he's feeling. But I think it only trivializes it just because of the stereotype of, what an incel is right yeah, like i think it, that there's probably a lot of similar kind of anguish that is being tapped into there absolutely and and i think that that a lot of these people aren't living an alienated and painful existence right as i reread this to record this part i was like this really does sound like a a, a, a shooter like it sounds like the the raving like what it might the inner life might be of somebody who everybody described as a quiet person who kept to himself but who has this fantastical inner world where the the whole world is so against him that he might actually end up doing something about it in a way that would be completely unexpected yeah and you know i i think russia had this kind of person at the time and some and and, and sometimes it would come out in like a lot of the terrorism that would take place, the bombings on the part of the nihilists, um, <laughs> bombing train stations. We believe in nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, their nihilists didn't believe in nothing. Yeah. Their nihilists are like, they, they have very strong particular beliefs. They're just against the kind of Christian uh, dominant um, idea, Russian ideology that was, you know, um, prevalent at the time. Uh, one thing that I noticed going through this again is that it is full of contradictions and ironies, yeah, was, part two. Right. There are so many allusions in part two to... So, so again, he's rebelling against the deterministic conception of human beings in part one. And then in part two, he is constantly talking about how he is impelled or fated there are so many deterministic descriptions of why he degraded himself in in these ways that are described at the story uh, oh yeah interesting so, I, I hadn't i hadn't put that together you're there, right yeah 
So let me just give a couple examples. So he says, every decent, every decent man in our age must be a coward and a slave. That is his normal condition. I am profoundly convinced of that. He is made that way and is constructed for that very purpose. Uh, th- that is the law of nature for all decent people on earth. So, so he starts out right there talking about this is a law of nature. You are constrained. You have to be. It's necessary that you're going to be a coward. Um, in the in the second story, he knows it's going to be bad for him to go to a dinner that he invited himself to with people who don't respect him and that he doesn't respect. And so he says, of course, the best thing would be not to go at all. But that was the most impossible of all. Once I feel impelled to do anything, I am completely drawn to it head first. So, like, again, there's that deterministic thing. And then afterwards, when he's already humiliated himself beyond like anything that, you know, most people experience, he still follows them to this whorehouse. And at he's he's deliberating in this carriage, like, what am I doing? Like, you get the sense he could stop himself from doing it. And then he says to himself, no, I have to. This is fate. I have to. And and there's so many examples of this. He talks about with Liza, a spice, a spiteful feeling took possession of me. And then the most dramatic example, the one that is, I think, the climax of the book is when he breaks down in front of Liza and he says, they won't let me. I can't be good. I can't right. be a good person. It's not possible for me. Right. So he is just systematically going against this idea that he is rebelling against the deterministic understanding of human beings. He's not, ex- I don't know about excusing himself, but explaining his behavior as necessarily caused yeah and so much so that the there's very little language of agency as he's describing his own behavior so so he says you know sometimes i was unwilling to speak to anyone uh, to anyone other times i would talk a lot and then all my fastidiousness would suddenly for no rhyme or reason vanish it's like it's happening to him. He's relating yeah. what what's going on, not choosing. That's um, right. The, it's happening to him. Right. That's it's how all, he described. That's how he. That's how it's it, described. Exactly. And it and and he clearly feels so sorry for himself. Um, it, it, you know, in this in this super <laughs> super self centered way, like he's it's it's full of self pity that he is thrust into this circumstance of he fantasizes about like everybody respecting him you know Uh, that's like that's what he jerks off to like people moving for him when he's walking down the street you know um the other yeah i mean but but i think it is a that feeling where nobody is even taking the time to notice your existence. He he worries about challenging the officer to a duel that he just won't accept it. Yeah. And at the dinner with those people, like he's like, I apologize for insulting you. And they're like, you're not even at the level where you could insult me. Right. You know, like right. that's, I mean, I, that's gotta, that's gotta be hard. As, although I, the way that I read it, it is to me, a misunderstanding of what everybody else feels. So he says at one point, I'm alone and they are everyone. Like, I think that what he's suffering from is this, that feeling that, you know, the first day of school, 
where you it feels like everybody must know each other and you don't know anybody. But in reality, everybody is feeling that. Like all he has is his inner life. Like he thinks that when somebody walks by him and doesn't say hi, it's because he is less noticed than any other human being. But in fact, I think that's just everybody's experience. Like he's, you know. Yeah, we, uh, you said this in the last episode. I, I don't totally agree. Like I think he is less noticed than most people. And partly this is just because, you know, he, he's social socially maladjusted yeah and like i i i mean i do think he 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 definitely suffers from what you're talking about yeah but those four friends that go out to dinner like they notice each other they don't act that way to each other the way they act to him right so so he definitely is lonely and has no friends um this is part of the i think um great writing of Dostoevsky that it it is an unreliable narrator we have no way of knowing whether in fact um or imagine you and I like imagine someone coming up to us and saying like I have I've walked by you 20 times and you've never ever said hi and and we'd be like I I didn't see you like you're you're not particularly invisible it's just that you've never even said anything to me but the issue wasn't that he didn't say hi the issue was that you know, in that thing on the street yeah. where one of you has to move out of the way, he didn't even <laughs> he lost think the game that there of was. He, yeah, exactly. He lost a game of, of, of street chicken, <laughs> and it was like it wasn't that the person won the game. The person didn't even think there was a game. <laughs> they, yeah, they were. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Like I think you're right. Like that at that dinner, maybe if he hadn't been convinced that they were all secretly <laughs> right. resenting him being there and thinking bad thoughts about him, it could have gone better. But they didn't want him to come to the dinner. Like no, it's no. pretty clear that they didn't want him there, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um definitely. And and I think it's good that we don't that we don't get their perspective, right? Like we we yes. um this is this is all the internal musings and and th- there's no doubt that he is magnifying his causal role in the in the world and while at the same time lamenting that he has no causal like like yeah. role in the world um that's right he's like epiphenomenal essentially yeah. <laughs> the other thing that is hard to to ignore and it's very it seems very purposeful on Dostoevsky's part is to keep having him talk about how smart he is in a way that is yeah is, it's it is i think we all know people like this in when he's talking about being everybody's a coward and a slave um and he's like, I was too, but, but I was just smarter. And I, so I realize it like I'm smarter than yeah. all these sheeple. And so, and he's always talking about how well read he is and how much more intelligent and people probably resent me because I'm so intelligent. Um, yeah. And this, this actually has a tragic culmination too. So there's one time where he doesn't, um, blame like being impelled or he 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 says uh this was after he lies of the prostitute he he puts money in her hand when she was making a a very loving gesture to him and he was and he says i meant to lie a moment ago to write that i did this accidentally not knowing what i was doing 
through foolishness, through losing my head. But I don't want to lie, so I will say straight out that I opened her hand and I put the money in it from spite. But then he backs off that. It came into my head to do it while she was running up and down the room and she was sitting behind the screen. But I can say this for certain. Though I did that cruel thing purposely, it was not an impulse from my heart. It came from my evil brain. The cruelty was so affected, so purposely made up, so completely a product of the brain of books. So that's where he's sort of, Mm. that's the tragic culmination. It's like, my book learning here mm. is not something i'm boasting about empty you know in this empty boasting way it's what made me do the thing that i feel most <laughs> right. guilty about and that i can't get over 20 years later it, it, i wonder what kind of books made him do that <laughs> so, but yeah this it is clear <laughs> that he has this very rich fantasy life about being a protagonist in one of these um in one of these books where, where he wins and challenges somebody to a duel for honor and wins it. And he can't even get himself in situations where he might act honorably. Or just have somebody accept a duel for him. He's too <laughs> low to accept a duel. Yeah. You know? I, I, again, I don't, I don't feel like the, the reality would be that he's too low to accept a duel. It's just that from somebody else's perspective, he's built this up for like, you know, months and months and yeah. uh, and then but but the other person's just playing pool and gets bumped right and like then yeah. someone challenges to you to a duel you'd be like you'd kind of feel sorry for them you'd be like no no dude like i'm not gonna like, yeah <laughs> yeah no and and pity is the thing that he feels <laughs> like the most insulted by and the most right. threatened by the idea that like these people are they don't yeah it's it is ultimately a, a lack of respect in that, I hesitate to say, Kantian sense where the person regards you as an equal, but right. people don't, is, or at least that's his worry. They don't regard him as an It's equal. his worry, but he's done nothing to elicit people's treatment of him. Like he's, you know, he's a, he is a loner. He's not, uh, he's not engaged in relational, you know, uh, any effort to, to actually build relationships with people that would even allow for them to show him respect, you know? He, and then, like, Yes, and and anytime there's a possibility of that, like with Liza, he acts in a way that just <laughs> yeah. makes it it's just awkward. Never happen. No, not awkward. Like worse than awkward. Just no. I'm imagining him as awkward. I think in in my head, like uh, uh, as like as somebody who socially would make everybody else so uncomfortable around him. Um, yeah, you know, right. There and there are people like that, and yeah. it's sad. You know, there are people who just don't feel comfortable in their own skin, and human beings don't like to be around people like that. Yeah, um, there's a there's a, a sentence that I read, and and for some reason I re- I really like the way he describes himself, his cowardice. He says, "Don't imagine that it was cowardice made me slink away from the officer." He's talking about playing street chicken with the officer. I never have been a coward at heart. Though I have always been a coward in action, <laughs> where it's like, wait, what exactly are we defining? <laughs> yeah, your point about unreliable narrator is also totally right. And there's a little section where he's talking about going to one of these people who will, like, when he just can't take being alone anymore and he craves social interaction, he goes to this person's house and he has these two daughters. 
And he says, I was terribly embarrassed for the girls because they were always whispering and giggling to each other when I was there. And it's like, what do you think they're whispering and giggling about? And yet you're embarrassed for them? Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's like, uh, that. that's a classic unreliable narrator right there. It's like, we get that they're making fun of him and whatever awkward thing he's doing, but he sees it as he's embarrassed for that. Yeah. So it's such a, it's, it is a study in defense mechanisms too. Like he's, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, he That's says right. at some point he uh, decides that that officer who keeps disrespecting him by not moving out of the way. Um, this is one morning though. I had never tried my hand with a pen. It suddenly occurred to me to write a satire on this officer in the form of a novel which would unmask his villainy. Like this guy's a, a villain for like, um, and he wrote the novel with relish. He says, I, I did unmask his villainy. I even exaggerated it. At first I so altered his surname that I, it could easily be recognized. But on second thought, I changed it because, you know, he's, he's not going to do, he's not going to stoop to that. And so he sends it to whatever uh, uh, publication. And uh, it, he says, but at that time, such attacks were not the fashion and my story was not printed. Um, right. So it's like, oh, because a victim because, of the fashion of the exactly day, not the not thing. that you wrote a really weird story about an officer who's a terrible villain because he, um, there was a time of emails where like <laughs> there was this fantasy that you would write that email and the person would see that they were wrong <laughs> and they would realize how they've mistreated you. And like, uh, you know, that's how that that uh, I think in every age there's some sort of form where people can fantasize about that yeah his his life is seems to be all all uh composed of that feeling that you have sometimes where um if only you had thought of that sick burn at the moment (laughs) (laughs) right right and you're just imagining you're replaying it in your mind over and over again and he just and like because he's alone and so he's that's all he has time to do yeah exactly he quit his job right like he had enough money like inherited from some aunt and so he was able to quit his job and then now you know from part one it's just him and his and his thoughts and his guilt yeah Um, it makes me afraid to ever live alone for long enough that i start (laughs) like (laughs) <laughs> um he, it's funny i was saying this in the vertigo episode like there's that <laughs> thing that it's capturing of just too much time on your hands yeah wandering the streets but he doesn't even seem to wander the streets that much no and when he goes he it, when he goes out he doesn't want to be says he doesn't want anybody to see him he doesn't want to be recognized so he goes to places where he could be truly anonymous when where it's like wait are there really places where you'd be recognized? Like, if so, then you're not that invisible. Um, yeah. Uh, can I read the last section? This is when he's describing why am I writing these notes? What have, what am I doing? And he's saying, I think we've now reached a point as human beings where real life is an effort, and we've all privately agreed that it's better in books. Um, <laughs> and once we have freedom, we'll want to be controlled. And then once we're controlled too much, we'll want to have independence. Then then we'll have independence. We'll beg to be under control. And then he says, and I know how you're going to act to this. You're going to begin to shout and stamp your feet. And now I'm quoting, speak for yourself, you will say, and for your miseries and your underground holes. But don't dare to say all of us. Excuse me, gentlemen. 
After all, I do not mean to justify myself with that all of us. As for what concerns me in particular, I have only, after all in my life, carried to an extreme what you have not dared to carry halfway. And what's more, you have taken your cowardice for good sense and have found comfort in deceiving yourselves, so that perhaps, after all, there is more life in me than in you. Look into it more carefully. After all, we don't even know where living exists now, what it is, what it is called. Leave us alone without books and we will be lost and in a confusion at once. We will not know what to join, what to cling to, what to love and what to hate, what to respect and what to despise. We are even oppressed by being men, men with real individual body and blood. We are ashamed of it. We think it's a disgrace and try to contrive some sort of impossible generalized man. We are stillborn and for many years we have not been begotten by living fathers and that suits us better and better we are developing a taste for it soon we shall somehow contrive to be born from an idea but enough i don't want to write more from underground so it's i think that's a really interesting passage in light of part one like in part one he was proclaiming independence from what nature required of us and now he's complaining on on the one hand he's complaining about the human being's tendency to generalize and to be ashamed of their individuality but in the same breath he's talking about what all human beings are like whether they admit it to themselves or not this is who they are so he's doing the very thing that he's accusing human beings of doing and at least in the first part claiming independence from and so he is contradicting himself in that last rant so starkly right right and then that's where dostoevsky's final note says <laughs> the notes of this paradoxicalist do not end here however he could not resist and continued them but it also seems to me that we may stop here <laughs> And that's uh, the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I love that last note. What the, do you make of doing the notes? Like having the bookends of the two notes from a quote-unquote Dostoevsky. I, I like it because what it gives me is a... Um, so, it's giving Dostoevsky the ability to distance himself from the views that the underground man is espousing, which for better or for worse, makes me think of that underground man as, as, as a character. I don't know. I can, I can treat him as a, as a character with thoughts without having to worry too much about what, how much of this Dostoevsky is endorsing. Does that make sense? It's otherwise so personal. <clears throat> exactly. It sounds like the, like a journal entry right yeah right and i think i think he shares some of dostoevsky's ideas yeah i think dostoevsky is doing a good like i think that the the ideas he's clearly endorsing some and clearly like saying like pointing out like the fucking danger of of some and without having without being moralistic about it he's just presenting these as notes from somebody else it's a whole bunch of ideas um now, what exactly Dostoevsky's endorsing and what he's not, part of it is I think it gives you the freedom of expressing a germ of an idea that you may not really ever want to express in, in your real writing. 
Like he's playing around with, with some ideas that maybe have crossed his mind, but, but, but he's rejected. Um, or he's worried about, I or think he's worried he, about. Yeah. So he's it's creating, a way. he's creating a, a, a really nasty individual, allowing himself to express ideas through this fairly nasty individual, um, without getting attributed any of them to him. Yeah, and and also a way of sort of working out. I think Dostoevsky has a, if I had to guess, an underground man side of him, mm-hmm. but also a side of him that is very wary of the the views and the personality. And this is a way of sort of getting both sides of himself out without taking a stand as to you know, which is right, which is wrong, which is... Yeah, and there is a way, you know, even referring to him as a paradoxicalist, um, creating this character, you know, I think there is a deep truth that we all have these, like, real contradictions in in ourselves, like what we believe, what we endorse. I mean, we think that anybody who's reflected on, on... their own existence like it becomes pretty obvious that we we have these contradictions um across the board it's like what it means to be human like it's it's you're a robot if you're so consistent and he's creating a person who is magnifying those paradoxes as a way to as a way to talk about him now normally like you might if you write a story or a book you might create three or four different characters, each who expresses something different. And that's kind of what he does in The Brothers Karamazov. In The Brothers Karamazov, he's like, okay, Alyosha represents this, Ivan represents this. And they argue with each other. And you get the sense that Dostoevsky's working out his ideas through yes, that dialogue. Through the- Here, it's this cool literary tactic to make one kind of crazy person who is in, on the one, in one breath expressing one thing and another breath expressing another thing. You know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, right. It's kind of cool. Um, it it's very cool. There's no dialogue it, except between the contradictions that are internal to the underground. <laughs> right, right, yeah. exactly. And uh, and I I love that they are that I do love that we have zero idea how much of his interactions with the external world are accurately told, and how much is just complete, uh, you know, bullshit. Um, we, we just don't know. This is all the internal life of this person. And I, and I think it does add something in a way that could have been corny, but, but wasn't to say that you found this, right? To like describe it as something that you found. And Borges does this all the time. I think that it adds yeah. some, there's some feeling that it adds, even though I know obviously Dostoevsky wrote this, he didn't actually find it. There's a like, a, it gives it a reality. Like when, when Borges makes up a bullshit book, he says in this book, this guy wrote this. It's different. It feels different than just saying this. Right. So there's also, and I think this is very emblematic of Borges, like a meta textual element to it. So, you know, it makes us aware in the way that we might not be, if there weren't these footnotes, that he is a character. Mm-hmm. He is a character that's created. And, you know, it's sort of ironic that Dostoevsky starts out saying, although they're imaginary, 
such persons as the writer of these notes not only may but positively must exist in our society again sort of playing that deterministic element that you know that people are bound to exist in uh in this fashion given the way society is and then that he just ends the notes even though they continue again the underground man like i think i read this somewhere so but i don't remember where he is trapped as a fictional character by Dostoevsky. By his boundaries. He, by his boundaries, exactly. And so he doesn't have... It's another way of showing that he doesn't <laughs> have independence, right? Uh, like, that's really interesting. Like, Do- yeah. Dostoevsky has himself decided when his story should start and, and when it should end. That was the thing that I think I came across. I'm not smart enough to think of that myself. But yeah, uh, yeah I thought yeah. that was... That's really interesting. That's really nice. Um yeah, no, I, I I like the technique. I'm not I'm not well versed in literature enough to know whether other people have like you had used this technique before. I assume people had. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure people have ever since then. But it's but it is just well done. Like just the thought that both it's constrained by Dostoevsky, but like also that we have somehow in our head, like this knowledge that oh by the way he kept rambling. He might have rambled for two pages. He might have rambled for like a hundred more pages. But, like, the guy couldn't stop himself. And, again, it's this thing where this guy wants to be heard, and he can't right. be. And he was only heard when, you know, somebody above <laughs> allows him to be heard. Um, so, okay, like, Tamler, it was your idea to read this, and I, I hadn't read it, like I said, since college. And, and um, as is always the case, like, I end up enjoying it even more, like, after we discuss it. But this is really... I, I I really enjoyed it. There's a lot in this. There's a lot that is uh, true about human nature in a way that I'm reminded. Like the reason I really liked Dostoevsky before is like he just has this knack for understanding particular human psychology. Even though I don't relate at all to the underground guy, it's like his neuroses are a magnification of things that we experience all the time. Like, did that guy really, like, he didn't move. Like, it fucking bugged me that he didn't move when I was walking right toward him. Like, why do I have to move, right? Like, we have that. That that happens to us. But he's, in magnifying it and giving us this neurotic, paradoxical right. creature, he's saying something about what it is like to be human in a way that, like, if I had to share with aliens, like, who could read, I wanted them to get a sense of, like, the the kind of bullshit that it is to live an everyday existence as a human being i might give them some of this i i I totally agree like i would say you know with the caveat that it's not always this bad but when you're seeing our neuroses at their worst moments this is what it's like and he's just an example of that as as an entire character fortunately we have these other sides of us which <laughs> right. enjoy companionship with friends and you know or at least most of us do there i think there are people like this um adapted for our age yeah i mean i i, I also i agree with you like i love this book and it's always i always appreciate these things more when we have a chance to discuss it um 
I think there's a lot of stuff we didn't tap into mm-hmm. too that we could. Like I think it's a really rich novel and there's stuff like just the stuff with the servant with Apollon and you know that like we haven't really talked about but I bet there's like a, a ton of interesting stuff yeah. there. And, and we barely we didn't really, talk about Liza. We didn't talk about Liza and the yeah, and that is that is sort of taking the trope of the the man who falls in love with the 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 prostitute with the heart of gold and and sort of turning it in into something different right it's in turning it's, it into yeah something yeah. really really sad i mean really the other sad. stuff is is has its comic elements there's nothing comic about that part and i i think it's you know it's it's the thing that makes this story so sad is a a, a, a man who's just born not comfortable in his own skin and then just makes that his situation worse with every decision that he makes every interaction that he has and at one point does something that he even considers unforgivable yeah. and that he won't even attribute to being impelled like he says he backs off that he's like no i have to take responsibility for this for what i did when i put the money in her hand i have to take responsibility for that and he can't forgive himself for that and he's constructed this whole philosophy which again i think dostoevsky has some sympathy with but he's he's constructed this whole philosophy as a way of dealing with his tragic life just why am i wired up like this why am I dealt this hand, this particular hand, and why did I play it so poorly, especially at that particular moment? That's right. It's the 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 one the one moment of regret, and I think that it's such a powerful moment of regret. Not that he doesn't regret all of his other sort of, you know, like I wish that I had stood my ground with the right. the street chicken, but the one thing that. I think happens in his interaction with Liza is he, he really treats all other human beings as he's almost solipsistic um, in that every other human being is a caricature. And there is a moment where he realizes that Liza is a human being. At some point he says, so she too was capable of certain thoughts. Like he's like, wow, like this is a human being that has feelings and thoughts that are not unlike my own. Like it's his moment of actual empathy. But before he knows it, he's so caught up in the way that he acts before he knows it, he fucks that up. Yeah, you know? completely. And, and yeah. Totally. And, and they have a moment of real love. Yeah. Yep. And he he just was caught off guard by it. And the one, the one, you know, the one thing about being, the experience of being a human being is it is a little mind blowing to know that somebody else's life can be as complex and they, as, as yours, that other minds are, have hopes and desires and fears and dreams. And, and they are, you are not the only one. And it seems as if he has that glimmer of it and then he fucks it up. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And it's also the one time where somebody else that's vulnerable like I think he thinks of yeah. the the uh the you know those four friends at the dinner as Claude's but yeah. the, you know like he can't harm them. Right. Like there's nothing that he can do and he knows this to uh 
do anything more than just frustrate them and make them wish they didn't invite him. But they, he, they, they're not vulnerable to anything that he can do. But she was, and right. he took that power, and he, and he. That's uh, right. It's the first time he's ever been empowered in a way to affect someone else's life. Like yeah. he's lived his life lamenting that he has none of that power. And then when he had it, he abused it in a yeah. terrible way. Right. Right. Even when he does have power, like over his servant, he just does. He doesn't encode it as actually like another human being who he's screwing over. Well, but he also doesn't seem to have power over the servant. The servant no, seems the servant. to have power over him. <laughs> right. Yeah, like out, like he, he can't get rid of him. He wants to, but he can't. And the guy just like, you know, he, he just knows how to handle the underground man. You know, <laughs> it's like sometimes if I'm all worked up and my wife just doesn't acknowledge me you know she's like she's right. just like i'm gonna let this pass i'm not gonna that's the most frustrating thing that yeah, anybody can yeah. do is just kind of stare placidly at me and you know you start to feel like a little kid you start to feel like a little kid that's ranting and raving and then the parents are just kind of ignoring letting it pass and it's so frustrating as an adult that's right is yeah he's victim poor poor tamler the victim uh, the victim <laughs> all right so the 75 percent of uh, our listeners who have not read dostoevsky yeah. as i predicted uh read it read the notes from underground and hopefully yeah that number has gone up we did <laughs> see it's it's short and it's definitely well worth reading it is a yeah uncomfortable but in a good way yeah all right, join us next time on Very Bad Week. Persuasion boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think he lost, and with no more brains than you have. Just a very bad wizard.